Will you please make your way with me in your Bibles once again to the third chapter of the Apostle, the Apostle Paul's epistle to the Romans, where we are going to be looking together this morning at verses 1 through 4. That's Romans chapter 3, 1 through 4, and you can find that text on page 1106 in your pew Bibles. This morning as we look together at this third chapter of this wonderful letter of sacred scripture, we have one of those reminders that we see every now and again, once again, that scripture as we read it now with all of its chapter breaks and its individual verses was not originally written as such. Translators added those breaks as a means of being able to locate certain and specific truths within the Word of God itself. They serve a purpose, to be sure. Much in the same way that our roads and addresses serve to help us to get to where we are going, these breaks help us to find the specific places within the whole of Scripture uh, much more efficiently. That's why they've been added. We have to remember, though, that they do not always indicate the finishing off of one thought or one point and the beginning of a new thought or a new point. The book of the Bible, this book of the Bible, was written as a letter. It was to be read as a letter to the churches who were gathered in Rome. And we see here this morning, Paul is still dealing with circumcision in particular, which we talked about just a few weeks ago. And in a much broader sense, with the sinfulness of mankind and the greatest need of man being the grace of God as it is manifested in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He has been seeking to destroy all forms of false assurance that were existing within the people of God. And he's been focusing in on his Jewish brethren specifically. As I mentioned to you a few weeks ago, Paul has systematically been throwing down, kicking out from under them, Every single prop which they were using to hold up their false sense of security. They're thinking that they were okay with Almighty God because of who they were or because of what they were doing. I mean, they were the ones who were in possession of the revealed Word of God. They were the chosen nation of God's people from the mass of humanity in the world. They were those who pour upon their bodies the sign of the promise that was made to their father Abraham. Circumcision. And one by one, Paul has shown them how each one of those things, apart from the grace of God, would all utterly fail to save them from the curse that was upon mankind because of sin. They, just like the Gentiles, were sinners who stood in the desperate need of the grace of God. What they needed most was not those things in and of themselves. They needed Jesus. He to whom ultimately all of those things existed to point towards. They needed Him as the substance of the shadow. The substance behind all of the forms. However, they had embraced the forms themselves. And in so doing, they had rejected the substance behind the form. They had eaten the husk for their nourishment 
casting aside the cob and the kernel. They had embraced the shadows and rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. The substance of all of the shadows. And one by one, Paul has sought to show them the error of their ways and the dire consequences of their action. Though the revelation of God should always give birth to utter humility in man, they had, through their misapplication of it, actually grown prideful, which Paul points to as proof of their having missed the point altogether. Though they had recognized their duty to be a light to the world, to the nations that surrounded them, they stood in self-righteous judgment over them, missing the fact that they too were guilty of the very law-breaking that they hated other people for. They had failed to see their own misery and their own condemnation in the law. They had embraced a false assurance. Assurance that was fueled by their adherence to forms, separated from the glorious truth that they served to point to. And again, Paul has thrown each one of them down. However, the questions, or rather I would say the objections, are not yet complete. Paul knows that it's not enough to stop there. He knows that more questions will inevitably arise. And like the loving shepherd that he is, he addresses every single one of them. He leaves no stone unturned, no question unanswered. It's very interesting here to pause and look at what Paul is doing. We see here a pattern, if you will, for dealing with error in the church. For dealing with presumption upon God, even with the spreading of the gospel itself. As Paul seeks to show his fellow countrymen the true glory that surrounds Jesus Christ and his gospel. In a day and age when we're all looking for ways to simplify everything. When we are looking for programs to make us more effective Christians, when we are searching for the perfect way to present something like the gospel to others and to be more effective in our presentation, we would do well to consider what Paul is really doing here. And understand, it's not a neat and tidy program. Think about what Paul is doing. He knows these objections which will arise within his fellow Jews because Paul himself has been there. He knows the doubts. He knows the fears. He himself has experienced the stumbling blocks. He never once breaks into a self-righteous tantrum here over the thick-headedness of these people. He's not seeking to be winsome or witty Or charmingly sarcastic. He's not trying to be more intellectual. Or merely to win an argument. In fact pride is not a motivator for Paul at all. Love is a motivator. Paul has judged himself by these things. And found himself to be wanting. Paul is passionate about the gospel. Because Paul knows that he too desperately needs it. And he loves these people enough to take the time to correct them properly and lovingly. 
You understand, beloved, he, turn, he leaves no stone unturned because Paul knows that he's speaking of matters of life and death. There is no simplification to be found here. There is no program. There is only a clear and thorough presentation of the truth. Motivated by his deep love for his fellow man who, like him, were all made in the very image of God and had been broken by sin. We must always keep that in the front of our minds when we read through a wonderful Christ-exalting epistle like this gospel of Jesus Christ that really makes up this letter written to the Romans. And as we move to the text this morning, we find Paul dealing with yet another objection, which he knew would inevitably arise in the minds of his fellow Jews after the arguments that he had made against their false sense of security. We have here another objection, which the answer to, beloved, moves us steadily closer to the brilliant glory that surrounds our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So let us now look to the Word of God this morning. I'd like you to follow along as I read Romans chapter 3, again reading verses 1 through 4. Hear now the Word of our Lord. What advantage then has the Jew? Or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have, the privilege that we have to come before your word this morning. We ask that you would fill us with your spirit. We pray, Father, that you would challenge sin and self-righteousness within us. We pray that we would not be those who cling to the externals of religion and seek to be defined by them. Father, we pray that more and more you would open our eyes to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and what it means to have life in him. And Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We have before us in this text this morning really one primary objection given to us in two parts. And the second part arises out of a misunderstanding of the first part of the objection. The overarching objection is this. What is the profit then of being a Jew at all? If all these things are true, Paul, does not all of this just prove more than you would like it to? That's the second part then. Does not all of this show then that God's promise was without effect? Therefore proving God himself to be unfaithful. The first part of this objection that Paul knows will arise because of what he has already said about the Jewish people's false assurance of their standing with Almighty God really is a great question. It is a logical question. It is a question that indeed we all need to hear the answer to. 
And Paul does not simply just dismiss it. One would probably expect here Paul for Paul to answer differently than he does. If we misunderstand this question. To the Jewish brother or sister, on the heels of this very stern, heavy-handed rebuke against trusting in something like the mere circumcision of the flesh, apart from the circumcision of the heart, one would expect that Paul would answer this question with a hearty and very emphatic, absolutely nothing. The question is basically, well then, Paul, if what you're saying is true, then what possible advantage does the Jewish person have? The circumcised one. What does he have over everyone else? What advantage then has the Jew? What profit is circumcision? And Paul has already said that circumcision itself profits nothing when it is divorced from its greater inward reality. But this objection goes deeper than just that. It is not just that circumcision itself profits nothing. But the question is, actually, if these things are true, then what is the advantage of even being named amongst God's chosen people at all? If what you're saying is true, does it not prove that God's promise is ineffective? Paul, if you're right, then being the chosen people of God is almost more cruel than it is not. You have said that the Gentiles are condemned because of what they know from nature. They know the God who is. They know the God who reigns. His evidence is manifested all around them, even in them. Therefore, they were created in His image. And they have suppressed the truth. Therefore, they're guilty. But we have the revelation of God written down. We have His word. We have His promises, His law, His prophets. And they serve only to condemn us that much more than everybody else. So Paul, if you're right, then there's no benefit to being separated or marked out as the people of God. And Paul says, no, really it's quite the opposite. There is much advantage in every way. And he tells us what the great primary advantage is. And beloved, we would do very, very well to hear the Apostle Paul here. This is just as easily applied today to the church of Jesus Christ as it was to these first century Jewish people. And I think the New King James here gets this translation right. The word that it defines here as chiefly is from the Greek word protos. It literally means first. And it's been translated in many versions of the English Bible as such, as first. This is but one of those areas where those who are seeking to destroy the notion that the Bible is truly the word of God, that it's really just the writing of men who are wrestling with an understanding of God's revelation. This is one of the places they like to point in order to show the fallibility of the mere word of men. Paul never gets to to a second. He names this point as first and then he moves on to another question. But what Paul is getting at here is not first in a matter of sequence, but first 
in a matter of importance. You understand? It's the same word that Jesus uses in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, where he says, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. First is expressing the utmost importance. And I think chiefly is a great way to express that very thought in the English. And Paul tells us what the chief advantage then is for the Jew. It was because to them were committed the oracles of God. There are, of course, other advantages, and Paul will even eventually get to some of them in chapters 9 through 11 of this very letter. But the primary advantage, the chief advantage, was being the recipients and thus the constant hearers of the very word of God itself. The oracles of God. His divine word revealed. The will of God, that is God's revelation of all that man needs to know in order to be reconciled to God, to know God savingly, all in order to live in sweet communion with God, is revealed to us in his word. And the Jewish people had that very word in their possession. They had the law and the prophets. They had the precious promise of God made to Abraham. They had the covenants. They had the signs and the seals. They had the prophecies concerning the Messiah, and that was nothing to be taken lightly. They had far more than just mere forms which they were resting in wrongly, but they had the promises of the substance to which those forms pointed. They had the word of God. And that was the greatest advantage that fallen man could ever hope for. Almighty God has invested power in his word. Paul would tell Timothy that all scripture is God-breathed and profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and instruction in righteousness. And that word, that very source of power had been entrusted to the Jewish people. They were raised with the very word of God before them. It was read regularly in the presence of the people and their children. They had in in their possession the word of God. They had the sacrificial and the ceremonial system which pointed continually to the greatest need of mankind. It pointed to his sin, to his need for a blood atonement, a sacrifice for the remission of sin and the promise of life. They had the prophecies which foretold exactly what he would be, where he would be born into this world, what manner of life that he must live, and what he would, of course, accomplish for the true people of God. They had the sign of the covenant which pointed them to the precious promise that would be culminated in the Lord Jesus Christ, the seed or the offspring of Abraham, who would seal the blessing of the nations. They had the history of their people, a history of redemption, 
a deliverance from bondage, not to the promise and, and a history of deliverance from bondage and deliverance to the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey and blessing. They had God's word. God's revealed will which contained even the promise of the very Spirit of God coming to open the hearts and the eyes of sinful men. A promise reiterated by Jesus Christ. The problem was not that there was no advantage, but that they in the hardness of their hearts had missed the significance of what it was that they had in their possession. They had missed the glory of the Word of God. They had missed the beauty behind the promises. They had taken for granted the Word and thus missed the glorious advantage that they had in being in possession of it. Beloved, it was not the first time in Israel's history that that had been the case. They had done it several times before. You think of that scene in Nehemiah's day when but a single copy of the Word of God was found. And the great excitement that erupted in the community of God's people upon that discovery, the people gathered together and they listened intently as the Word of God was simply read before them for a quarter of a day at a time. You think the sermon's long? sit under somebody reading the word of God for a quarter of the day. And they rejoiced in it. It happened again in Josiah's day. The word of God had been so set aside that a search had to be made to unearth even a single copy of the wonderful word of God. But God has always remained faithful to preserve it, despite the lack of concern for it on the part of man. Paul says in answer to that question, you have the word of God and there could be no greater gift except the spirit by which you will come to see it for what it is. No advantage? Really? There could be no greater advantage. However, they had missed it. And Paul has pointed them to their manifest behavior and attitudes which betrayed who they really were at this point. And circumcision was but a case in point. They had the form. They were resting in the form and they had forgotten what the form was even for. God told Abraham he was to circumcise every male as a sign of the covenant that existed between him and his God. It pointed to the promise. It was a constant reminder that God himself had cut a covenant with him and his descendants after him. And when that covenant was made, something very significant had taken place. God had Abraham cut the carcasses of the sacrifice in half and lay them out upon the ground across from one another with a clear path between them. And when God came, he made his promise. And he did not invite Abraham to join him in passing between the pieces of the sacrifice, swearing his own allegiance to the covenant. But God came, and he himself passed between the pieces, and he swore to uphold his promise by his own name. He put his own faithfulness as God on the line. 
and thus gave to Abraham and all of his progeny the most rock-solid assurance that they could ever hope for as fallen men and women. A promise that was as secure as God himself. He cannot and he will not ever fail to uphold all that he has promised in his word. It's not a scenario where we try our hardest to uphold our end of the deal and wish for success. God promised by his own name, saying in essence, may I be cut asunder like the pieces of the sacrifice should I fail to deliver upon my promise. The sign was a reminder of what it is that we must depend upon. And there could be nothing greater. There could be nothing sure than that. And Paul says in essence, look, the problem is not that there is nothing to be gained from being the recipients of the oracles of God. The problem is that you have not heard the oracles of God through the power of God's Spirit. You have the Word of God. You know His divine will, yet you fail to apply it correctly. You have failed to see the end of all things in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. You have failed to be taken by the hand through the form to the substance. And that is precisely why you so desperately need the gospel. Beloved, I trust you can connect the the dots here, that you can see the parallels. This is precisely why you are here this morning. The argument could be made just as easily today against trusting in the forms without the inward realities to which they point. Church membership and baptism will not save you. But they do point you towards what in fact will. And it's not as if you have no benefit from those things. Hopefully, by the grace of God, because of those things, you come here week in and week out, and by the grace of God, you are fed through the preaching of His Word. It's why the Word of God is central to our worship. We read it, we respond to it, We sit under the preaching of it, and by the grace of God, we are led to the glory of Jesus Christ through it. What greater advantage could we ever hope to have in this life than the Word of God? But if we stop with the exercise of these things, and we never, through the power of the Spirit, get to Jesus Christ... None of these things avail us anything at all. This is and has been precisely Paul's point all along. We must trust Jesus Christ by faith. And the only path to that faith being instilled in us is through the word of God. Faith comes from hearing the word of God. We must avail ourselves to these things, not as the ends themselves, but as the means to the end. Do you understand? And the second part of this objection then flows from this one, and really, it gets to the heart of the matter. Paul says, for what if some did not believe? 
Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? And Paul answers that question with the most emphatic negative that language will allow. We've, saw, we've looked at it before in Romans 6. He says, certainly not, may it never be, may we never even entertain such a thought. May it never even be considered. Let God be true and every man a liar. Far be it from man to ever presume upon the guilt of God and his condemnation of man. If his word is not perfectly true and good, it cannot provide anything like real hope. We understand this question, right? If God must make us believe, if faith must be His gift to us, originating with Him, and not with those who would hear the word, then does not God prove to be unfaithful? And Paul says, listen to me. Your assurance is rooted in the fact that God is always faithful, even to the faithless. God is always just in His condemnation of sin. And He must be, or He is less than God. And we have no reason to ever be assured of anything at all. And Paul points them to King David, who spoke of this very fact as he poured out his repentance before Almighty God in Psalm 51. You remember undoubtedly the occasion that brought that psalm about. Nathan was sent to confront David because of his sin and taking Bathsheba as his own. And taking part even in orchestrating the murder of her husband to cover up his sin. And David is crushed by the weight of the realization of what he had done. And we can see it in his cry to God for forgiveness. He laments before his God and he pleads for mercy, though he knows full well that the only thing he deserves is justice. He says, have mercy upon me, O God. According to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from within. Cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done evil in your sight. That you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. And of course David is speaking in the ultimate sense here. He certainly had sinned against Bathsheba. He had sinned against Uriah. He had sinned against his own wives and his children. He had really sinned against the whole realm of the kingdom. But chiefly, he had sinned against the holy face of God. Beneath whose gaze he lived. He had tried to cover up his sin from the penetrating eye of God. And in so doing, he had failed to acknowledge the impossibility of such a thing. He had broken the law. He deserved to be punished with the wrath of God. And David knew it. And notice what he does not do. He does not call into question the justice of God and casting him away from his sight forever. He does not appeal to his own record other than to acknowledge that it had never been very good. 
He does not try to justify his actions. He does not play the victim saying, God, after all, you made me this way with these insatiable desires and lusts. He does no such thing. He says, Lord, I and I alone have tread upon your precious word. I have hated you in my deeds and I beg you to make me clean. Because nothing less will suffice. Lord, give me mercy. Purge me as only you can. May my actions never infringe upon your holiness, your faithfulness, or your love. See, beloved, this is what repentance looks like. It's never a shifting of blame to God. It never seeks to be justified in its actions. It throws itself upon the mercy of God. It pleads for such forgiveness that changes hearts and leads others to see the same in themselves. That's ultimately what David pleaded for. He cried out to God asking him to so open his eyes to the glory of salvation, salvation from himself, salvation from his sin, so that he would spend his life singing the praises of such a merciful God. Telling others of God's great salvation and His loving mercy available in the gospel. Telling others what He had been given in the promise. David knew better than to trust in the forms. He needed the reality behind them. He needed the broken spirit and the contrite heart that they pointed to, the one true sacrifice to end all sacrifices, the only blood that could ever purge him of his own heinous sin nature. And God gave it to David. God is faithful to his promise. And Paul says, it is better that every man is a liar than that God should ever fail to do what he swore by his own name to do. He will always save his people. And beloved, it is there in the faithfulness of God himself that we find the rock of assurance that will never be moved. Almighty God has provided all that he has promised in his infallible and errant word. In the, perfect, in the perfect person and work of Jesus Christ. The Jewish people had denied him. They had missed him as the substance of the shadows. And Paul says that they and all who do likewise remain under the curse of the law. If they deny what God has revealed, then they are liars. But God is always faithful. He reaches down and he snatches us from the mire of our sin and our shame and he sets our eyes upon Jesus Christ. And through him, we continue our pilgrimage through this troubled life, steadily making our way towards the glory of heaven where we will be with him for eternity. You see, beloved, this is the privilege of sitting under the Word of God. I I can't stress the importance enough. This truth is at the very heart 
of what we are here to do each and every Lord's Day. This is the thing that we cannot afford to miss and somehow think that we have reason to be secure and to live in a false hope. What has the effect of sitting under the word of God been for you? If it has given you reason to believe yourself superior to anyone else, then I want to tell you this morning, you have not heard it. You haven't heard it. If it has caused you to feel secure in merely being here, then you have not heard it. Not through the Holy Spirit. If it has caused you to swell up with pride that you are among those in the know, those who possess things, those who keep them tight to the vest and hoard them, then you have not heard it. The word of God drives us to our knees before his magnificent holiness. It fills us with humility and it gives us hope, not simply for ourselves, but for our neighbors. And beloved, by neighbors, I want to be clear, I mean every single man and woman made in the image of God. That knowledge ought to bring about an evangelistic effort amongst God's people that does not need a program in order to be effective. The gospel itself, the truth itself, is power. It's power. Do you believe it? Let God be true. And every man a liar. What greater hope could you and I ever have? Beloved, do you hear the word of God this morning? If you do, then I urge you to take him at his word. And to live as one who trusts him entirely. Live joyfully before his face. Giving all praise where it is most certainly due. To God himself. Amen? Let's pray.